gospel lesson today is from the 20th chapter of the book of John. It continues the story of the Easter resurrection. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and and put my finger in the mark of the nails and, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer, O Lord. Amen. Time just seems to be slipping away from me. Perhaps it's because I'm getting older. Or maybe it's the instantaneous worldwide news coverage landing on my phone a hundred times a day. It fills my psyche and my phone with a staggering amount of data that keeps pushing this week's events so far back that it seems like Easter happened a month ago. But in truth, week before last, some of us were here multiple times, eating a holy meal together in intimate tables of 12, singing the songs of faith, praying the solemn prayers, meditating at the foot of a black-draped cross, and hearing the story of Jesus' final excruciating hours before he breathed his last and gave up his life. Then, last Sunday, nearly a hundred people gathered before dawn to greet the risen Christ, and hundreds came to celebrate the empty tomb with holy greetings of peace and songs that literally brought us to our feet in excitement as we reveled in the angel's words to the sorrowing, surprised, silent women. He is not here. He is risen. 
then for most of us it was back to business as usual back to work or school to our chores to that constant cycle of news of terrorist bombings lost children shootings political maneuverings and economic posturing and all the rest and the simple fact is that today's attendance is not quite what it was last week but pretty good pretty good well and, and it doesn't really can't compare to any easter's attendance now I, I don't say that as a judgment i've been doing this a long time it's fact you can look back and in some ways it's kind of hard to sustain the enthusiasm of easter once all the eggs have been found and the chocolate bunnies are all gone and the lily trumpets begin to wilt and droop and so the familiar story gets shelved in our memory banks where it belongs no one knew that better than John, the gospel writer, did. Writing near the end of the first century, he addressed people who had never seen or heard Jesus in the flesh. Most of them had been born after Jesus died. So the stories they heard came second or third hand. There were some eyewitnesses still around, but even those trusty souls were, you know, getting on in years. Think about it, a child who was maybe six years old at the time of Jesus' resurrection on Easter morning, would have been close to 70 by the time that John wrote his gospel. John's problem, which is a continuing problem then for the church, was how to encourage, how to engage people in the faith when Jesus was no longer to be physically seen or touched. The story of Thomas gave John the perfect way to do that, by retelling the reluctant disciples' story of doubt, John took the words right out of our mouths and put them into John's mouth instead. So that each of us gets the opportunity to think about how we believe or, or do not come to believe. Scripture says Thomas was not there the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples on Easter evening. Thomas was the only one of the eleven who was absent which gives us maybe a clue into his character. Tradition has it that Thomas was the only one bold enough to venture out for food for the rest. And like Peter, Thomas had distinguished himself as a leader among the disciples, primarily because he was willing to say out loud things that the others were probably thinking anyway. Remember back when Jesus was thinking about going to be with his friend Lazarus in Bethany? deep in enemy territory everyone else was trying to keep jesus away keep jesus out of it thomas stands up and said let us go that we may die with him and then on the night of the holy meal after supper was over and jesus was talking with his friends and he told them not to be afraid because they knew the way to the place where he was going and thomas says oh wait a minute we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? You see, Thomas was not willing just to follow along, well, at least not automatically. He was actually a, a brave, literal-minded free thinker who could be counted on to do the right thing, but only when he had had little time to think about what the alternatives might be, and so he knew what the right thing was. Maybe you've known someone like that yourself. 
someone whose refusal to go along with the crowd or just take anybody's word for it, in the end has more integrity than those who simply follow along without taking a second thought. Now, the ten disciples who were there the first Easter evening did see the risen Lord. And they were so convinced that it was Jesus that afterwards, when Thomas comes back, they simply told him that they could take their, they could take his, their word for it. Jesus was back, wounds still visible in his hands and his feet and his side, but very much alive. And he had forgiven them. He who had every right to hunt them down and punish them for deserting did not say to them, shame on you boys, but rather, peace be with you. He had healed them with those words. He had literally given them back their lives and made them partners with him in the revival of the world. We've seen the Lord, they told Thomas. They were just so sure they expected Thomas to, to acquiesce and say something like, well, since you guys saw him, it's good enough for me. I believe, what's our next step? But we know that that is not what Thomas said. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples are again in the house. Only this time, Thomas is with them. Doors are shut. Jesus appears a second time. And he invites Thomas to put his fingers in the wounds. And the doubting disciple falls to his knees and exclaims that he believes not only that Jesus is alive, but that he is in fact my Lord and my God. Now the story is familiar to us, but in order for us to allow that story to fire up our hearts anew, I'd like for us to make sure that we re-examine one part of the story the very beginning, that very first sentence where John locates the story. Listen, it was the evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. You see, the disciples had returned to their happy place where they had felt safe and loved and comfortable. It was the last place they had been together with Jesus. It was the upper room around the same table where they had shared that final meal. They were cowering in fear in the dining room of that house. Well, who among us when we receive uh, upsetting news doesn't try to find a familiar place and, and familiar people who can, can comfort and reassure us. Though having your dead friend show up for dinner is about the least expected and the least familiar thing you can imagine. But Jesus does something very familiar, and by the way, very Jewish. Jesus says grace. Jesus offered a new prayer full of deep gratitude when he says, peace be with you. Dr. Diana Butler Bass is a scholar specializing in American religion and culture. In her book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks, writes this. Now, I don't have much familiarity with dead dinner guests, but I know a thing or two about gratitude. Spent the last 14 months researching, practicing, and writing about gratitude for my book. 
One thing I learned, maybe more than anything else, is that gratitude and tables and table fellowship go together. Even today, she writes, in deeply divided America, slightly more than half of us say grace when we sit at the table to eat. It is interesting that the disciples were locked in that dining room. Why? Well, they were there because they were afraid. And in their fear, Jesus shows up, breathes on them, and speaks peace. And like that, their fear seems to evaporate. In recent years, neuroscientists have discovered that fear and gratitude don't exist in the same parts of our brain. Fear resides in the amygdala, that reptilian part of our brain, but feelings of gratitude activate our neocortex, the front of the brain with our higher thinking capacity, more recently evolved capacities. Indeed, research now believes, researchers now believe that gratitude and fear cannot exist at the same time. That gratitude actually processes fear, effectively driving fear out, taming it, giving us human beings the possibility of acting with courage, with hope, with joy, and with compassion. So when Jesus shows up at that table on the evening of the empty tomb, in the very same room where the feast had become a funeral, a new table is set. It's a table of gratitude. The gifts of God for the people of God with the power to drive out fear. So the second appearance of Jesus is actually not about doubting Thomas. It isn't about a dogma or the kind of belief that expresses itself in a creed. It's a story of thanks. It's a story about Jesus showing up yet again at that dinner table to cast out fear and to transform us into a people of gratitude. Now Thomas doubts because he wasn't at the meal. He didn't receive the blessing or the gift of peace that the other disciples had received. And Thomas wasn't particularly grateful. He remembered all that he had lost. And he's likely still afraid and filled with sadness. So he said, can Jesus really be alive? Thomas is still living in his fear and willing to enter into a grateful journey toward a new reality. And like his Jewish forefathers, his doubt echoes, can God set a table in the wilderness? A little side note. Did you realize that almost all of the post-resurrection experiences of Jesus involved table fellowship and eating food? In the 50 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus shows up at meals and in tables, sometimes asking for food, sometimes providing the food. And every time he does, there would be a prayer because that's what the Jews did. They said thank you at the beginning and at the end of every meal. It was gratitude. It was table grace. All this makes me wonder and makes me think that perhaps we've missed something important about the celebration of Easter, the Trojunum, the major three and major events. We Protestants are often accused of skipping over Good Friday too quickly in an attempt to get to Easter. But I wonder if perhaps we skip over Good Friday, or Monday, Thursday too fast, in our hurry to get to Good Friday. We've underplayed Monday, Thursday's dinner table in favor of Good Friday's suffering on the cross. 
What if the main story isn't the violence of Friday, but the feast on Thursday? Now, I've always read the dinner table story from the cross, but what if we read the story the other way around and understood the cross through the experience of the table? What if the story starts on Thursday? The Last Supper is the final meal of the age of injustice, oppression, debt, and sin, and the first meal of the age to come in the age of God's reign of peace and justice. And all who commune there celebrate our passing over from the rule of Caesar to becoming children of God. Free from the bondage of slavery, from rather going from the bondage of slavery to the freedom then of serving other people. The table is set for the new world. We offer grateful prayers and our exodus is at hand. But of course, Caesar doesn't want this to happen. The religious hypocrites, the authorities who are complicit with Caesar's reign, don't want this to happen either. The powers of this age want to destroy the table of gratitude, the table set by God. So Friday's execution is Caesar's violent attempt to destroy the table of grace forever and to keep us enslaved. Jesus dies. The disciples return to that same room to remember and mourn what almost was, but God says, no more. God is out of patience with history's pharaohs and Caesars and injustice and hunger and oppression and violence and death, the whole thing. And Jesus rises and the tomb is empty. Where does Jesus go? Does he return to Calvary's hill or to Caesar's palace and shout, look at me, I'm alive. No. The risen Christ goes back to the upper room to offer a table of peace and gratitude forever. Gratefulness banishes fear. Thanksgiving replaces grief. But that would seem to leave us out, all of us who were not there. All of those of us who will never lay eyes or hands on the concrete person of Jesus. We're outside of that circle by 2,000 years, and yet Jesus means to include us in that reality as well. Hmm. Did you know that your name is in the Bible, spoken by our Lord himself? It's actually in the Thomas encounter. Remember back, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then speaking over Thomas's shoulder to the rest of us, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. He's talking about us. Those of us who have never seen him in the flesh who have only the testimony of others to rely on, people who were there and who, though they are long dead, still beg us to take their word for that. And they know what they saw was true. They also realize they were privileged, that something extraordinary had happened during their lifetimes. And they also knew that it was up to them to keep it alive somehow. So their children and their children's children on down to us could participate 
in the wonders that they themselves had experienced. So how did they do that? Two ways. Almost immediately, they incorporated the holy meal into their table fellowship, a table of gratitude that became part of their worship life. And they remembered and collected all the stories they could remember about Jesus, especially those in where Jesus was most Jesus to them. And they told the stories in hushed voices in the catacombs under persecution. They shared them word for word in the home church worship services. And then they wrote them down with all the power still in them so that when they read them aloud to one another, they could feel their hearts beating faster and their palms beginning to sweat. They left plenty in those stories and left them intact, even though they found some of them puzzling or troubling or downright offensive because they knew that those were the ones that had the best chance of staying alive. People would not be able to leave them alone. They would keep coming back to them over and over again, discovering fresh nuggets of truth each time they returned to the story. Now, if you are a lover of stories like I am, then you know that this is really true. A good story doesn't just tell you about something that happened once upon a time long ago and far away, but it rather brings that time to life so you can walk around and experience it for yourself. You finish an epic like Gone with the Wind, and you can feel lonely for days, missing Scarlet and Rhett and Melanie. And my hands still sting and burn when I think about Hemingway's Santiago battling the huge marlin with only a handline in Old Man and the Sea. That's the power of the word. And when the word concerns Jesus, that power becomes divine. It is God's power. Scripture is the message our ancestors rolled up in a shared memory for us because they wanted us to experience the person of Jesus. If not in the flesh, then in the word. Reading what they set down for us all those years ago, then we are free to believe, to encounter, or, or not to believe. But one thing this morning's text tells us is that seeing is not superior to hearing. How can we know the way? Scripture and sacrament. That's how we can know the way. One can trust either seeing or hearing the message. One can come to believe either way. And when you think about it, where the physical, concrete person of Jesus is involved, actually a precious, precious few saw him in the flesh, either before his resurrection or after. But millions upon millions have discovered him, not in the flesh, but in the word made flesh. And those words have a way of jumping off the page. They are rooted in history, but they're more than history. Jesus is still alive in them with the power to make us weep and, and rejoice and hope and act. Maybe that is why we call both Jesus and the stories about him the living word of God. And the holy meal is so much more than a beautiful ritual it is our opportunity to taste and to see the goodness of the Lord. So Jesus tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. 
Can we do that? No. Can the story make it possible through shared memory? Yes, it can, and it does. If we open ourselves up to it, if we believe, because believing is all the Holy Spirit needs to bring that story to life. Or more precisely, believing is all the Holy Spirit needs to bring us to life. Breathing on us the same way that Jesus breathed peace on his disciples. The story is alive already with or without us. And God wants us to be a part of it. So that we too can shout Hosanna on Palm Sunday. That we can taste and see the goodness of the Lord on Monday, Thursday. And to sit in silence on Good Friday. And to laugh out loud on Easter Sunday morning. These and a thousand other ways, he wants us to be a part of Jesus Christ's risen life on earth so that the brave, fragile testimony goes on being heard. We have seen the risen Lord. In the flesh? No. In the story? Possibly. In our shared life together, through scripture and around the table of blessing? Absolutely. That is how we come to know the way. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you stand as we sing the affirmation, lift high the cross. <laughs>